This is CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with me, Kingsley Kipuri, on the Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. Been away for a couple of weeks. So excited to be back. I've truly missed you guys. Um, cold front's gone. Weather's feeling good. Um, and I'm having the time of my life. So just really excited to be back. Great reception from Twitter. Uh, thank you so much to everybody who listened in to our last interview um, with Prof. Ola from Vitz. Um, phenomenal book, phenomenal interview, and we're just loving the engagement on that. So all the feedback we're getting, Facebook, Twitter, and on via email. Um, yeah, and we really look forward to bringing you much more content like that. So it's a, it's a massive thank you from us. I'm trying to think what's been happening since we were last on. We had the eclipse in America. My favorite picture was Donald Trump staring right into it. That was pretty funny. Um, so I had a, f- a great time with that. Since then, what have we been thinking about? A lot about democracy. Um, and there's a lot of voting at least happening across the continent. So we've had the Rwandese elections in the month of August. We've had the Angolan elections in the month of August and the Kenyan, Kenyan elections too. So we've been doing a lot of thinking as to, as to what, what's come out of those and what, and what lessons can we learn for those specific countries and for, and for South Africa and the rest of the continent really. Um, so lots of, lots of, of talking points around incumbent governments and, and how they can remain neutral or abuse state power in the build up to elections. A lot about opposition politics and, and, and when is it just disruption and when is it truly fighting for, you know, electoral policies to be followed and constitutional policies to be followed. Then a lot about true democracy and citizenry, um, you know, and, and whether voting is enough to say that everybody was counted and included and that everybody has a voice in how their lives turn out. I'm not in studio alone. Uh, Kader, Greg Nicholson is also here. How are you doing, sir? It's good to be back after a little break. <laughs> you got the man flu again. <laughs> I think I think I might be allergic to um, bullshit. I'd say after hey. after reading Durazane Zuma's letter hey. yesterday. So it's come. I've I've got a cough and maybe a flu coming on. <laughs> Greg's bringing the spice. Oh man! Wow, that was great. No comeback from me. That was power. That was power. Power to you, sir. Okay, time to get into it. So, first thing we want to talk about is Rwanda. On the 4th of August, that's last month, we had elections in Rwanda, and this really a lot of conversation around Paul Kagame, the current president there, around, around the trade-off we see coming out of Rwanda about, you know, so a lot of allegations around clamping down on, on freedom of speech and freedom of movement and ideas, but, you know, the trade-off for sort of development and progress and development outcomes. So on the line, we've got Daniel Makokera, who's an analyst who closely watches Rwanda. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you, thank you very I'm, much. I'm good. Uh, thanks, Daniel. I know we had to move times around. Thanks for coming on. So, Daniel, my first question is really starting even before the election. When you see the move to allow President Kagame to stand again for a third term and potentially being able to stay in power till 2034, at least hypothetically, is that is that worrying for you? Is that alarm bells around you know an evil dictator staying on, or are you just seeing someone who's doing their job and is being allowed to keep their job? I, I, I think, uh, for me, Kingsley, I am not very worried. And, um, and I suppose I'll have to justify my, my statement. Um, if you just uh, look across the continent and you look at uh, countries that have gone through elections over and over, you try also and look at uh, what they've done uh, for their people, I think uh, that's where you start probably seeing why President Kagame hmm. seems to be very much liked by people. Across the board, by the way, um, I'm thinking the country um, to our north. Uh, they say they go through elections, and uh, they'll tell you that they're doing right with the people. 
But of course, we know that there are a lot of people yeah. here who are from Zimbabwe, who are running away from a government that says they are doing right. Now, contrast that with what I see in Rwanda, and I have to tell you, I've been following Rwanda for a while now, hmm. uh, from the 1990s. And uh, I, the first time I went to Rwanda, I arrived at a, a very, really ramshackle airport. I drove uh, on a dirt road, going to a very run-down hotel. You go to Rwanda today, skyscrapers, five-star hotels. You have kids who are going to school and they're using tablets, even in the furthest uh, of uh, the rural areas that you can you can go to. You have a parliament that is a shining example, not only for the continent, but uh, also for the world where more women representatives, actually we have the biggest percentage of women representatives in that uh, parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, the chief of staff, just to tell you something interesting, chief of staff in President Kagame's office is under 40 the chief of staff of the president of Rwanda. And uh, roads are being built, people are going to school. More and more people, you're getting to see people coming back. And the sense you get is, it's a people that is happy with uh, what is going on in the country. Now, you will know the background of Rwanda, what happened in 1994, yeah. where there was uh, the extremist Hutu people who went on for the minority Tutsi people. Today, the biggest supporters of President Kagame are not the minority Tutsi people. It's actually mainly the Hutus who say, we were told by the extremists that if Kagame and his people were to come back, they were going to chase us back into the bushes of Congo. But today we are here, home, happy, and rebuilding the country. That's what you get to hear. Now, is it a perfect society? Is it a perfect uh, uh, government? I would say, like most governments around the world, no. I mean, I hear you, and 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 the development indicators are there, right? So the 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 work on poverty is 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 great in terms of the the number of people who are being who don't no longer have to live in poverty in terms of mortality rates, in terms of gender representation, in terms of education levels. So the numbers are there. But are you are you not concerned about the 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 things that don't make it to the press, the things that don't come out in terms of ability to criticize the state, ability to criticize the government, ability to express yourself freely? Um, what, what's your take on the trade-offs that are having to be made for this pace of development and amount of discipline towards the, the development? You, you, you know, Kingsley, uh, yeah. for me, and probably you might end up calling me a Kagame apologist. Um, I suppose <laughs> you I'm said it before told, I did. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm a bit told to the Rwanda story because I saw the trajectory of the country from really mm. from ground zero to where it is now. But, but with that, you can critically I, engage with trade-offs, despite... I, I, oh, no, yeah. I, 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 that, that's what I want to do. But yeah. I want you and I to also be, be very open. I'm a, I'm a journalist myself, so uh, maybe not practicing uh, as much as I used to do. But I just want us to... Let's, let's, let's have this discussion. Sure. Being a poor, many people will tell you it's not a democracy, Right? But if you go to Singapore, actually the whole Singapore city is defined city, not because of sunshine. If you spit, you get fined. If your dog pees on the pavement, you get fined. If you, you just don't do certain things in Singapore, right? But I think, I think maybe time has come for me as, as a journalist, as an African journalist, where we should stop parroting certain things that we hear. I just want to challenge you on the, question, uh, on the question you asked me. You say, Daniel, but are you not concerned about things that are not coming out? I don't even know what those things are, personally. Okay. So now I must be concerned about things that are not coming out, but 
So you you don't know about Kagame and enemies in courts getting killed in in certain hotels and and in the in his work in the DRC and involvement there. You know nothing of this. No, no, I'm not saying I, I'm not saying I know I know I know not, I'm not saying I know nothing. Okay, so we uh, know we know the trade-offs. I'm not I'm not saying we must. That's the whole story. I'm just curious yeah. as to you, how you balance those out in terms of saying the Kagame's um, bet is that. Which we, we don't have the luxury of some of these things, right? We've come from a dark past. We've got to catch up and we, 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 we can't afford to slide back into genocide and civil war. And there have been certain trade-offs. So I just want to discuss so the for, for me, Kingsley, my yeah. argument would be, uh, let's not, um, there's a tendency, especially from, uh, outside to see Africa as a village and a one size fits all. Okay. I think the background of countries, um, must be taken into consideration. If you were to take South Africa, for example. Sure. I mean, not just about race relations with this country. At times, someone posts something on Facebook, and then the whole city goes alive. Now, um, are we saying that we are not in a democracy? No, we are in a democracy. But are we saying that because uh, apartheid is no longer on the statute books, uh, everything is all hunky-dory? No, it's not. So there is a process to go through. But should we judge then our leadership that they failed the majority of the Africans in South Africa uh, for not advancing the issues of race relations? No, I don't think so. I think it's work in progress. That's how I view uh, the issue of uh, Rwanda. And, you know, at times I get the sense it's almost like, let's wait. I mean, this thing is too good to be true. What is it that we should wait and see whether something something got to give very soon? That's what I hear. The, nar- the narrative on Rwanda is quite interesting for me. Okay. Um, and Daniel... I'm curious to your thoughts around some of the, if we look at Rwanda as a project and, and some of the strategic bets being made, focusing on tourism, and you've seen that through the airline, you've seen that through the connectivity, focusing on ease of doing business, focusing on renewable energy and things like cargo to deliver drones. And I'm curious about your take about some of the strategic bets that they're making that when we, if we invest in these specific things, the next 10, 20 years, we're building the economy of the future. What, what's your take on some of the decisions being made? My, 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 my take is yeah. watch this space when okay. it comes to Rwanda. Uh, it's a people that is committed, they're driven, uh, it's a people that knows that they don't have much as far as their country uh, has to offer with natural resources. Though I'm beginning to hear noise that there might be some um, uh, minerals that might have been discovered, mm. but of course uh, mm. it's something that uh, really has not been out there. Mm. I think they've modeled themselves and uh, saying we the most important resource we have is us as human beings, uh, human resource. So what do we do? Then I think uh, the leadership has looked at it and said, well, then let's be calm. Let's make sure that our resource is very much educated. Let's make sure that we make Rwanda a destination for many things. Right now, Rwanda is uh, the conference, is, uh, uh, Kigali is the conference's capital of our continent. Mm. Any conference here of is in Kigali. It's in Kigali. It's in Kigali. I think they are looking long-term. They have a long-term vision, and they see themselves is probably the springboard into the rest of, uh, of of East Africa. And they are building institutions, and that's another thing I wanted to say, they're building institutions that uh, would, would outlive this current leadership. Mm. And you're getting young people uh, who are coming back from all sorts of countries, um, coming back to rebuild uh, Rwanda, which, by the way, you, you could be in a taxi. Uh, you, 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 you have Wi-Fi. Uh, most schools are fully Wi-Fi. 
So they've taken the issue of innovation, the issue of the digital advancement, to heart, and they are capitalizing on it. Daniel, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. It's a country we continue to watch with, you know, at, uh, with, with, with great anticipation to see how things come together. Thanks for the insights, Daniel. Welcome to Okay, thank wonderful. You. Thank you. Greg, before we just move on, I just want to talk about one thing. We, we discussed before our, our cadres, our former cadres, Simon Allison's article about the trade-off between development and some of the freedoms that we, we, we'd like to see in, in, in democracies. And you made a great point about it's, um, I'll let you make your point for yourself, but you know, go ahead. Yeah, I yeah. think, I think what we're talking about yeah. is, Simon Simon was writing about how what we now call the Rwanda model is often looked at around the continent yeah. as as a model that can actually lead to development. Um, that's what we've seen in Rwanda, rapid development, but obviously, like you're saying, uh, it comes at the cost of human rights. And so one of the points that Simon made, and some of those human rights, like you mentioned, is yeah. a, a curtailment of freedom of speech, no free press, um, basically no opposition. I think there was only one person that ran against uh, an opposition member in, in the recent elections. And the election as well as, was 98.7%. Yeah, as, as well as um, um, jailings of poor people and street people. Um, and the list goes on and on and on. And like you mentioned, political assassinations, the list goes on. But... I think what Simon was trying to say was that it's easy to achieve the oppressive aspects of such a regime. Yeah. It's not easy to achieve the the um, the the aspects of development. So, and in Rwanda, it's actually quite complicated how they've how they've led to this sort of rapid development. It's not just cut down on freedoms and your country will improve. <laughs> That's not exactly how it works. They've got all sorts of other systems of accountability in place to ensure that they develop at a rapid pace. And I think if we are to expand this model of of this trade-off yeah. of curtailing freedoms while trying to push development, it's not a given. It's not a given that that equation will necessarily lead to development, but it is a given because it's meant to, that it will cut down on freedoms because that's the easy easy part. Absolutely, and you, you got to do the discipline part right of saying now that you're trying to focus everyone in one direction, you need the indicators. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of cool. Um, writings about Rwanda Inc. and how it's run in a corporate fashion just in terms of the, the indicators that everybody knows exactly what a good indicator is for their job mm-hmm. and is trying to achieve those and exceed those. Mm-hmm. So when you're creating that discipline and focus, you got to then do something with it. you got to convince people to take pay cuts to move back home and, and work for the state. And the, the under 40 chief of staff who Daniel was talking about, I, you know, I have no doubt that's Ivy League and so on. So you got to do the other pieces anyway. Thank you for that. I think we've got to transition to a different, a different country, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so Palesta and Greg will, will tell us what. Yeah, we're, we're good to go. Oh, so we're going to go to Kenya right now. Okay, perfect. So next up, we're going to be talking about the Kenyan elections recently concluded. Uh, we'll be speaking to uh, Nanjala Nyabola, who's a fantastic writer and, and, and thinker on, on all matters, Kenyan politics, democracy, justice. Um, so what, what we're, we're gonna just be talking about regarding Kenya is really the recently concluded election. So, I mean, that this has been covered quite widely in South Africa, but we have, uh, current president Uhuru Kenyatta and his Jubilee party going up against, uh, Raila Odinga, who formed a coalition called the, the NASA coalition, the National Super Alliance. And, and I think the narratives have been discussed in terms of, um, we have what a lot of people perceive to be 
what what's been a a, a Kikuyu dominance on the that's a, the tribe the Kikuyu in terms of the current president his 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 fathers a lot of people see as the founding father of the country Uhuru Kenyatta was very well known and 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 being able to 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 form their jubilee party or jubilee alliance um so just to continue so basically in the run up to elections what you have is a a really you know, a lot of people might say uh, disenchanted Kenya going to the elections in terms of the delivery the delivery record. So you have a jubilee party that that really has failed on the corruption front in terms of policing corruption, where a lot of people are seeing every week feels like a scandal. And this might sound this might sound familiar to, to those listening from South Africa, where it feels like every every week, every month, there's another massive corruption scandal. So we're coming in with that. At the same time, we have something that have been delivered on, like the the massive railway from Mombasa to Nairobi, that that has really been hailed as a big win in terms of imports, exports, and so on. And then, lastly, we have to remember that we we had the great rallying of the president, his deputy William Ruto, when there was supposed to be tried at the ICC and had to sit at the ICC for alleged or um, crimes against. Humanity in the post-election violence of the 2007 election. So you have this narrative that they've built of we are the victims, people are coming for us going into the last election. And then the other day we went to vote. Greg, I know you've, you've been watching this and have a bunch of questions about the Kenyans. From what's, what's on your mind? Yeah, I think the vote almost seemed predictable, right? So Raila Odinga, the opposition leader, yeah. is the continual you know um, opposition candidate. Yeah. Every time we think it might be his time. Yeah. But... You know, and, and sort of by and large, it actually, the outcome actually seemed quite predictable that, that the current incumbent president Kenyatta would win and the, the results might be disputed. Or it seems, I'm not sure, maybe I'm being yeah. pessimistic yeah, back then, but in retrospect, that's how it felt. And it sort of feels like, why does this keep on happening in Kenya? And how, how does it make you feel? I think there's a divided, and I'm finding it interesting that you said that the result was a given. They feel, there seems to be a divided, <laughs> Divided country with everybody almost certain that victory is ours and that we are the rightful candidate and we've done all the right things. So there was certainly a, a feeling from a lot of people that, that the time had come in quotes. But as they say in politics, you don't win because it's your turn, right? And we saw with Hillary Clinton also, you don't win because you've waited in line and now it's your, it's your turn. So for probably the fourth, fifth election in a row, we have the elections being contested. They've gone to the Supreme Court and the, the core contention is that disconnect between the polling results that we announced at, at, at a local level, at different constituencies and polling centers, and the national results that were announced. And we'll, when we talk about Angola, at some point we'll, 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 we'll come up with a similar, you know, the, the, the issue is similar. So you have separate polling stations that they announce results, right? They count and they announce. And they say, mm. Greg got five, what's Kingsley got three? And so on. And you had national results that were announced and there was a, there were many discrepancies between the national um, announcements and the local polling station announcements, right? So in theory, you just need people sitting down with an Excel spreadsheet, just telling, telling, telling. So that's gone to the Supreme Court and that's being heard now. And what's coming out is a lot of like irregularities with the, with the IEBC. Um, Greg, we're going to see if the third time's the charm on, on, on trying to reach Nanjala. Um, Nanjala, can you hear us? I can hear you. Hi, how Wonderful. are you? Wonderful. Third time's the charm. Um, thanks so much for, for connecting with us. I know we had to sort of rush the connection a bit. <laughs> it's Murphy's Law. Okay, perfect. So now that we're here, Nanjala, I've been doing a, a half-assed job of explaining the Kenyan elections. You, a thinker, you're a writer, you follow this so closely and help us make sense of things. 
And I just love to get a sense of, of, of where you were standing coming into this election when, with all the conversations around the IBC and their independence and their systems and infrastructure, with this feeling that it was Raila and NASA's last chance to, to win this with Jubilee's track record and a lot of questions around that. What is your sense coming into this election? I think there was two things that were happening at the same time. You're absolutely right. On one hand, you do have this sense for the opposition that it was a do-or-die kind of fight, that they absolutely had to... This is Vela's last chance. He's 72 years old. He's not coming back for another election after this. So there was that sense, at least from the political side, that this was a big deal. But also, in a more general sense, there was this feeling that um, we have spent... Kenya has invested so much time and money into the election process... Um, I don't know if you saw the statistics. This is going to be the most expensive election in African history. And there was also the sense of, you know, is it is it time for, is it Kenya ready after 25 years of multi-party democracy? Is it time for us to actually mature as a democracy and mm. to have a free, fair, transparent election that we can hold up and be an example in the region? Um, East Africa is a tough neighborhood, as you know, and Tanzania is the only other country that has had regular changes of government yep. through elections. So in some ways, it was a test for um, the process of democracy in East Africa altogether. And when you look at it from that bigger picture sense of things, it's not necessarily clear that we passed the test. Um, there's still a lot of question marks, mm. which is why we're in court this week. Mm. Um, but overall, yeah, it was definitely a high-stakes race. And now, I mean, you've mentioned already that the election, I spoke a bit a bit about this before you came on, basically there's, there's, there's major discrepancies between the national results that are being announced and what came out of polling stations, and that's, and that's revealed a lot of irregularities with the, with, with the electoral you know, commission's processes. I mean, I feel like there's two things happening. One is the trial of systems and infrastructure and IT, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that can have a yes or no answer. But there's also this, and you've written so beautifully about this, a lot of people who want to feel like their vote counts and that they're, they're included. Could you speak more yeah. about this idea that people are wanting to feel like they are part of deciding what happens with their country? Absolutely. You're, you've hit the nail on the head. That's, that's exactly the sentiments. That, those are the exact sentiments that we are we're dealing with. I mean, the litigation is being brought about for technical issues. Yeah. They're, so they're, they're asking, you know, why didn't the ballot paper from polling station X uh, count and why didn't the presiding officer from polling station Y sign the form? But really underneath all that is this mm. broader question. Does voting matter? Yeah. Does it matter that we wake up early in the morning on August 8th and stand in line for seven or eight hours and cast the ballot when we hand over those ballots to the electoral commission, yeah. there's no transparency as to what happens next. It should have been a very straightforward process. It was, should have li- it literally is addition. It is literally, <laughs> you take one person's vote and the next person's vote and you add them up and you keep adding until you get all 15 million votes added up. But instead, what we're seeing is a lot of uncertainty as to, as you mentioned, the ICT system. Mm. Did it work the way it was supposed to work? Did everybody's vote count? Did it matter that we stood in the sun for three, four, five, some even seven hours? Um, and, or was the, the decision predetermined um, electronically? And and um, I think for a young democracy, I mean, at some point we're going to have to stop claiming stop to be a young democracy. democracy. <laughs> you know, 25 years is a long time um, to have been voting, and we should really be better at this by now. Um, but yeah, for a young democracy with a young population, yeah. I think 51% of voters in Kenya were below the age of 35 
um, you want people to believe in the process and you want them to believe that their vote counts. And I just, I'm not sure that with all of the system failures that we've seen, that we've inspired a new generation of voters. Mm. Uh, Angela, I want to speak a bit about the Supreme Court. I'd love to get your sense on your ability, on their ability to be impartial and fair when there's, I can imagine, huge pressure to, to either go with, you know, with the, with the incumbent or either to succumb to a lot of angry people who feel like their votes didn't count. So I'd like to hear what you think about the impartiality. And secondly, about this either real or theoretical trade off to just let sleeping dogs lie and just go with whatever. <laughs> if we say the guy won, let's just get on with it versus opening a can of yeah, let's, let's, and revoting. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> No, I mean it's hard to tell. Um, we've had a new we've had a new chief justice, so the uh, former chief justice who uh, decided this is the the fourth election petition in Kenya's uh, multi uh, multi party history. So we had one in ninety two, we had one in ninety seven, we had one in twenty thirteen, and we have one this year. And of course, then we had the big case with the ICC in two thousand seven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and since two thousand thirteen, this is a new chief justice. Um, two of the of the judges on the bench have changed, so it's much harder to tell. Um, I've been watching the proceedings and following the proceedings of the Supreme mm. Court, and I can say that Justice Moraga is a very no nonsense kind of guy. Okay. Um, he, if he thinks that a lawyer is telling him something that's untrue, he calls him out on it in open court. And uh, you know, for a judge to do that at the Supreme Court is is something that's really interesting to see. We don't see that very often in Kenya. Um, I think that you know. It's it's hard. I think historically we've only seen globally. Um, I, I crowdsourced this information and okay. we found six only six presidential election results have ever been overturned in history. Wow. That's that's really small, like zero point zero zero one percent of all the elections that have been held globally. So um, I think the odds of a Supreme Court saying these results are now and therefore let's go back to the mm. ballot, are extremely small. Okay. That doesn't mean that the process isn't useful, though. Mm. I think it's useful to lay out all those technical errors that we've been talking about, mm. all those shortcomings, so that we do inspire the next generation of voters, so that people can see that, you know, this is where the system went wrong, this is why there's so many questions about the system, and this is how we can do better next time. So really, um, in terms of measuring the impact of the litigation, I think it's, it has to be bigger than just, um, you know, running the election again. I think we need to really dissect this election because there are just way more questions than there are answers. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious on your thoughts about the uh, the bigger question of inclusion. I mean, regardless of what happens with the Supreme Court, we're going to have a you know a very divided country of of somebody feeling robbed. Um, and yes. somebody, you know, overjoyed that that our team has won in quotes. And yes. what? And I know this is the eternal question, but what? What's your sense of how we start, you know, trying to fix that and, and move towards a more united country, or, or perhaps am I being too idealistic? And maybe this is just this is how it works. Somebody wins, somebody <laughs> loses, and you get on with it. No, I think you're. I think it's a it's a genuine concern. I think that a lot of Kenyans don't realize how much damage has been done to the national fiber in the last two weeks. I mean, the day after the days after the election, I was in um, a couple of informal settlements, and um, you know what happened after the, the result was announced was that there was some attempted protest in different parts of the country, and the police just kind of clamped down with a great deal of force, a disproportionate use of force. And you know, Kenya has always had a problem with police violence. So 
in many ways it was a continuation of the police violence that we've had in the past, but now there's this sense amongst poor people and people of a certain ethnic background that they're being targeted by the police. And that's a very dangerous sentiment because it's not a sentiment that you can take to court and say, no, in fact it wasn't. You, know, you can't adjudicate over that the way people feel. You can only make people feel better about a situation. Mm. I think it's it's Maya Angelou who says people might not remember what you say, but they will remember how you made them feel. And to me, the big risk of everything that's happened in the last few weeks is that we've made a huge part of the population feel secondary and unwelcome, yeah. Yeah. and especially poor people in informal settlements. And I, as a Kenyan, I worry about what spirals from that sentiment. You know, we, as, you, as I mentioned before, we're in a tough neighborhood. Um, we have examples of that kind of tension spiraling out of control all around us, Rwanda, Burundi, Ethiopia, Somalia, South Sudan, Sudan. Um, it, it, it's, it's pretty, it's a, it's, a, it's a much easier sentiment to unleash than it is to reign in. So um, I think that there has to be more than rhetoric. I think there has to be a genuine effort at reaching across different divides, uh, socioeconomic, ethnic, and, and really working hard to make people feel welcome again. Because I think people are really angry. I think poor people in Nairobi especially and, and people of certain backgrounds in different cities are really angry and really hurt. And, and I think it's going to take more than just words to heal that. I think we have to see a new approach to government from this administration moving into their second term, I think they're going to have to make a, a really concerted effort to bring people back together again. Okay, and Angela, my final question before I let you go is, is, is how do we move away from this place where, you know, party politics is just is the center of everything and where the country stops anytime we have anything to do with elections and and this anxiety and 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 feeling that we can only move on you know 3 months after the elections and where everything is designed around the election cycle and all de- any development or progress in any community is linked to the individual how do we how do we normalize this this process or is this a young democracy thing Hey man, if I had the answer to that, I would be a million. <laughs> I suspect <laughs> no, halfway through think, the question, I was I like, think, maybe we should just let that one go. I think we have to. I mean, to me, I see two ways forward. One is there has to be a generational shift, and there has to be a new generation that thinks about its identity and belonging differently. And in some ways, you're already seeing that, especially in urban areas. You're seeing a lot of Kenyans who are less strongly identifying with their ethnic groups and less linking their political choices to their ethnic Mm. affiliations. Um, I think, on one hand, that's one change that has to happen. I think this generation of politicians, we just have to let them go. They seem to be reluctant to change, and, and they seem to be willing to drag the rest of the country down with them. So I think the whole generation of politicians just has to change. Um, I think that we need to have an honest conversation. I think, you know, the problem we have in Kenya is a lot of the information that we, we have about ourselves is filtered through a very um, imperfect education system. And I think that if we start honestly teaching our children about how who they are and their ethnic identity and the fact that it doesn't have to be a threat to someone else, I think we'll start to see some changes there. Okay. Anyala, thank you so much for chatting to us. That was really excellent, and I hope we get to speak again in the future. Thank you so much. Okay. I hope to speak to you guys soon, too. Perfect. Wonderful. Um, that's Nanjala Nyabola, um, who's a writer and journalist uh, coming out of East Africa with some really excellent uh, work on Kenya.
We're just going into the final portion of the show, and, uh, and uh, another election, I know Greg has been watching this quite closely, is Angola. Um, we've had a sitting president there for almost 40 years, um, that's, that's President Dos Santos, and then the shock news um, that, you know, that he was willing to, to not be the president anymore. Greg, what, 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 what's, what's the first thing you thought when you see things like that happen? Well, the first thing I thought was that we should speak to um, our friend Rafael. <laughs> In Angola, so Rafael, um. Rafael, Rafael Marques de Moraes runs a watchdog uh, organization out of Luanda called Maka Angola. We've had him on the show. We've had some really excellent interviews with him and unable, we've been unable to reach him now just for technology mm. issues between Joburg and Luanda. But I think the question is, I think a lot of people and a lot of our listeners would probably know that, um, Jose Eduardo dos Santos, uh, ruled the country, ruled Angola from 1979. He was the country's second president and, and was a minister for, for, for a few years after, yeah. after it became, got its independence from Portugal. And he really led the party, the MPLA, the ruling party in Angola from being a very Marxist orientated organization, um, through a, a, a extremely bitterly fought civil war yeah. until I think it was 2002. Yeah. And, and then up until today where, where Angola has sort of ridden largely on oil money and it's the, it sort of competes with Nigeria yeah. as the biggest oil producer in the continent. And going from that Marx, Marxist sort of party and structure, they've really sort of pushed this state crony, um, capitalist, um, Sort of, sort of market-driven approach, Absolutely. but unlike we're talking about Rwanda earlier, yeah. not much of that. Maybe it's the mineral, mineral resources curse that yeah. we often talk of. Not much of that money has filtered down beyond beyond the elites to to the general population, and and much of it is said to have been rampantly looted. I mean, absolutely. And you see that from the wealth of the army generals, you know, the, 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 the president's daughter, one of the richest people on the continent. A lot of that money ends, ends up in Portugal. And there's a lot of questions to be asked about Portugal's, um, bystanding mm. of the looting of Angola. Um, so I think there's been a lot of disappointment from, you know, from sort of the MPLA regime mm. and over the past, the past 40 years. And I think with the, the, you know, over the last few years, the bottoming out or the, the dropping of the oil price, yeah. it's put Angola's sort of economic position in a very difficult spot. So when we're looking at the election and you see this guy who's been there forever, um, decide to step aside, yeah. obviously the big question is, will there be change? Um, will there be sort of a cleaning out of the government, cutting down on, uh, cut, cut back on corruption and, and opening transparency? It's hard, it's hard to say at this stage and hopefully we can get Raphael in perhaps next week or the week yeah. after that, but just as, as a bit of a primer for, for when we have that conversation. So, and I'm going to savage this name. I'm not the best with my Portuguese pronunciations, yeah. but, um, João Lorenco, uh, was elected president um, to, to follow on. He was chosen as Dos Santos' successor. successor. Yeah. Um, he was the former, the former defense minister, and he's come in on a sort of agenda, an agenda saying we're gonna, you know, we're gonna cut down on corruption. We're gonna be a bit more transparent. But when the corruption comes from his former boss and and longtime comrade. You have to ask whether that's actually going to happen. Yep. So before Dos Santos left, the parliament over there uh, changed the legislation to to make sure the new president couldn't change key key sort of heads, so like key army heads and yep. things like that, uh, for eight years. They gave Dos Santos, I think it's sort of a emeritus, emeritus president position, yep. where he is now um, he's, he can't face criminal charges. He's also still head of, Dos Santos is still head of the MPLA, the, the ruling party, party over there. Mm. And 
his family and and their their allies have amassed huge amounts of wealth and huge controlling networks of the country. So, for example, example, Isabel dos Santos runs uh, the oil, the, the the national oil company. Yeah, and uh, any multinationals coming into Luanda and Angola, you need to have a partner, and that's often somebody who's part of. It's often Isabel herself. <laughs> I'm going to say part of the family. No, it's just Isabel. But then, and her her son, uh, sorry, dos Santos's son, yeah. uh, is is in charge of the sovereign wealth fund. Mm-hmm. So there are all these, all these sort of limiting factors that, that may prevent sort of chain, a changing of the past. But, um, hopefully we can ask, ask someone with a bit more knowledge soon as to whether perhaps some of these, some of these concessions that were made were necessary just to move on from the Dos Santos era and start to try and bring in another era. Absolutely, and, and, and something we chat about briefly and we'll speak to Rafael when the time comes is just this, I'm curious about this as a case study or as a model for people who've been in power for, for, for far too long and have done some heinous things in their time, but, and, and the trade-off between saying you will not be, you will not be charged, you won't go to the ICC, you won't end up in a local prison, the army, your army general stay in power for a few couple more years and then I, is that can that then lead to a, a transition into something more resembling democracy and, and an inclusive sort of mm. governing style? And so I'm thinking of a, of, a, of, a, of a Robert Mugabe or a Kabila and saying part of the reason that people can't leave is because you've, you know, you've done too much. When you've been there's too many bodies buried and too much money stolen, you can't leave without some assurances, right? So I'm, I'm curious, and we probably only know this in, in 10 years or so when the generals are no longer protected and can leave and and we'll see what happens with Isabel and co but it'd be really interesting to see if there's something here for how to get people to leave power peacefully okay that's it content wise in terms of our democracy watch in quotes that's Rwanda that's Kenya that's sorry Greg is dying with the man flu I'm sure you can hear him coughing in the background um, so that's Rwanda that's Kenya that's Angola and and it's, and it's things that we continue to watch. So we don't want to do the thing of elections happen. This is what's going on. But we really want to try and give you a bit more insight and context. Now to the last sort of bit of our show, which is actually me saying goodbye. Um, um, this is going to be my last show as host and sort of co-host of the Daily Maverick show with Greg Nicholson. And I just wanted to say thank you. Um, it's my first job on radio, my first time on air, my first time in part of anything of this sort. And I'm just so deeply appreciative for the opportunity to, to talk to you guys every week or every second week and, and be a small part of, of these really important conversations out of the country and, and out of the continent. Um, so thank you for the great honor and privilege of allowing me to, to, to come on here and attempt to, to chat to interesting people and share some insights on what's going on. Um, and thank you for the feedback. Sometimes positive, sometimes critical, but I think it's, it's always helped us get better. And we've always tried to bring the insights, to contextualize the stories and to try and, to try and to, to, to share different perspectives and, and, and open minds and contextualize. That's really what we've always tried to do. So it's a deep and massive thank you to everybody listening in and also just some specific thank yous to the Cliff Central team, Sorina Bloomberg, who's always been so supportive, Gareth, of course, uh, and the team behind the scenes who you guys don't get to know. So that's Dory, that's Simpiwe, that's Greg Cohen, um, and who's always on the decks behind the scenes, which is Palesa Mabuye, who's phenomenal and always brings the hip-hop before the show. Uh, from the Daily Maverick, Simon Allison, Ranjani Munusami, Stili Charambolas, uh, for actually giving me the opportunity. And the actual writers who, who create the content. So Rebecca Davis, Marianne Merton, Marianne Tam. It's a massive thank you. Also, part of our team when we first started for Tima Matiba, um, who was part of the founding team in a lot of ways. Massive thank you to you. 
And lastly, of course, my co-host Greg Nicholson um, for being an awesome, an awesome, awesome support uh, for me behind the scenes and bringing the content together. And of course, on air, bringing the banter, bringing the humor and bringing his phenomenal journalistic insights. So thank you to everybody tuning in, everybody behind the scenes. We've done probably about a hundred shows and it's, it's a massive thank you. Going forward, uh, you can expect Greg to continue being the, 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 the producer and the host. Um, the content will always be what it's been. Contextual, important, insightful, and, and we'll continue to try to bring you the best news every week. Thank you. For the last time, this is Kings Dikipuri, host of the Daily Mavic Show on cliffcentral.com. Thank you so much. Show on cliffcentral.com. This is cliffcentral.com.